Hello, and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm John Duffley, the Communications Manager here at the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Today, I'm joined by Tony McClements, the Head of Investigations at Martin Kenny. Uh, Tony, like we had a little bit of a uh, little bit of a long stretch to get this one going, but I appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us today. Yeah, it was a little bit difficult, but we, we got it over the finishing line. <laughs> Uh, so a little bit of background. So yeah, Tony served 33 years on police forces around the UK, uh, beginning with Merseyside Police, where he became a detective in 1985. Tony's tenure in law enforcement included posts with special branch units, major crimes, the fraud squad, the financial investigation unit, uh, slowly building his acumen as a criminal investigation specialist. Uh, in 2009, following a multi-million pound money laundering investigation, Tony transferred to Lancashire to become its fraud evaluation and liaison officer. There, he implemented key strategies to aid fraud investigations, helped implement Action Fraud, which is the UK's National Reporting Center for Fraud and Cybercrime, and was nominated Police Federation Detective of the Year in 2012. Uh, after leaving law enforcement, Tony joined Martin Kenny in 2015 and has been a guest lecturer on fraud and financial investigation at the University of Central Lancashire. Uh, Tony, you have a wealth of knowledge coming into private practice after years as a police detective. Coming up there in those those early years, um, as a police detective, what initially drew you to fraud and financial crime investigations? Uh, I think it's fair to say I was forced into it. Uh, it wasn't something I aspired to. Uh, I was what, what we refer to as an earlier detective, um, sort of mainstream CID, and I got allocated uh, a crime to investigate. Uh, it's fair to say in the United Kingdom, I can't speak for the, for the States, Canada, that Fraud is something that you dodge uh, as much as you possibly can. Uh, they, do, they do tend to be long and convoluted, and what that means is it gives you less time to concentrate on on, on other investigations. Uh, so I got allocated by by CID standards quite a high value fraud. Uh, it sat on my desk for probably six weeks. I was terrified of going anywhere near it. I didn't really know where to start because it was it was it was all about piercing the corporate veil and one thing or another. So I went to the fraud squad, sat down with a, a chap there who talked me through it, told me what to do, um, and and basically I, I did it step by step under his supervision uh, and secured a conviction. Uh, and then what happened was a vacancy arose in the fraud squad and. They obviously like the cut of me jib uh, and offer me a job there, and, and, and the rest is history. After you took that first job, and like you said, it's a little bit of a, you know, those early days, convoluted, difficult to kind of figure out, you know, where to start. Um, how did you start to pick up strategy and tactics? Obviously, now, you know, you've implemented them after, you know, three decades. But how do you start picking up those strategies and tactics in those early days um, as a fraud investigator? Uh, it, it's no difference to anyone else. You, 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 you learn. From those who are more experienced, um, you you follow your predecessors. A lot of the stuff that we do is very much set in stone. It's standard practice. It doesn't matter which part of the globe you're in. We all follow the same, roughly the same sort of rules and guidelines. Uh, from from my perspective, um, the, the the challenge comes when you're faced with an element of the fraud that you've never come across before. And if you ask around the office, nobody else has either. So you're now um, pretty much act, acting on instinct, trying to formulate some sort of game plan. And I think everybody listening to this will agree 
that that's that's when you really get that enjoyment and that sense of achievement. Um, and and moving into private practice uh, into the private sector it was quite traumatic for the first twelve months because the language is different. Um, the way that they operate and the rationale that they follow is is is, is different, uh, and eventually you just you, you bed in and, and and you know you you sort of run along alongside the lawyers, helping them where you can and trying to identify uh, anything that may be evidential uh, and sort of drip feeding it to them so that they can make the most of it. Yeah, you answered my next question there, kind of that transition from uh, law enforcement into private practice and some of those differences, such as, you know, language and obviously following suit with um, some of the lawyers there. Do you, do you feel that working in criminal investigations in a law enforcement setting gave you a unique perspective that's helped in private practice cases? Oh, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I, I did a talk not so long back um, to Offshore Alert in London. And I basically spelled something out to the lawyers that there was that most law enforcement officers take for granted around the use of something called I2 charts. And I I struggled to comprehend how some of the the big fraud investigations that law firms conduct, uh, present to courts, uh, how they can do so without the use of these these charts, something that we take for granted in law enforcement and it was just something as simple as that um I, after i finished me me 20 minute stint uh i was approached by a, 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 a let me you know in all modesty all the questions came back at me from a, a, a three-man panel and all the the people who wanted to speak came to me on the three-man panel and it was because it, it, it was it was one of them moments of Thing where law firms, when you start demonstrating how these charts work, how you can use them to identify timelines, uh, establish uh, contacts, associations, telephone numbers, uh, corporate entities, bank accounts. When you can put all that on a chart, it 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 makes uh, the whole process so much uh, straightforward and more simple. It's jury friendly, so yeah, if you have to go in front of the jury, they can look at the chart and understand it. Uh, the, the judge likes them uh, because they have a an easily, uh, you know, they can refer to this chart in order to understand the, the intricacies of what's being presented. And as importantly, the other side appreciates them because if you present to the other side a, a chart indicating all the information and evidence that you've managed to acquire, the links you've, you've managed, you've uh, successfully established, there's more chance of them coming to the table and entering into some sort of negotiation. To, to my understanding, you know, your investigations team is starting to um, look more into private criminal prosecution. Can you explain the differences between, you know, civil and criminal cases and how they relate, especially to asset tracing and recovery? Yeah, there's, there's, there's several obvious differences um, and some less obvious, but obviously my United Kingdom background, uh, that's probably where I should stay in terms of uh, answering this question uh, mm -hmm. because I'm totally unfamiliar with the other side of the pond. Uh, the main difference, which is the same on both sides, is the burden of proof. Uh, in a civil arena, you're, you're working on the balance of probabilities, which is 
how can I put it, a much easier uh, standard to reach than the beyond all reasonable doubt and a, a criminal prosecution. Um, some of the evidence that you can introduce on a civil matter has to be introduced differently on a criminal investigation. Uh, the rules are much more uh, strict. Uh, some of them in relation to uh, things, something that we refer to as disclosure. Um, you have to provide the defence with any information, any evidence that undermines your own case, uh, that is going to assist them in building their case. And the the onus that's put on the prosecution uh, is, has been described as quite draconian in, the, in comparison to uh, civil investigations. So the, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of procedural differences. The one thing I would say is that evidence that you identify in a civil arena is evidence in the criminal arena. It's not like there's there's a there's a fundamental difference. It's just a lot of the time it's procedural differences. Evidence in one is evidence in the other. When when you think about uh, like pursuing a criminal prosecution in the private practice, so you mentioned specifically to the UK, are there other challenges that you know in particular? You know, you mentioned burden of proof and whatnot. Um, other challenges that your team faces, especially you know, given some of the um, more modern cases and things, I'm sure that you guys are pursuing that maybe previously hadn't been tried in a in a criminal case. I think I think the the thing with the private prosecutions is when you. When you have a bottomless pit of money uh, as a law enforcement officer, mm -hmm. you can approach the courts and seek production orders uh, and utilise police powers uh, that, that are bestowed on you. Uh, it's quite a straightforward process. If you're representing a, a client uh, seeking to convict the wrongdoer, then suddenly that bottomless pit of money is no longer there. Everything has to be paid for. And the, managing the, the, the costs and the approach uh, can be problematic. Likewise, um, how you deal with intelligence is can be starkly different as well. Um, we have access in law enforcement to so many databases uh, some more secret than others. Some, you know, that information is readily available as intelligence for the police, and it will help them no end in formulating a, an investigation plan that's going to succeed. Again, uh, one of the hurdles that you very soon real, well, it certainly hit me right between the eyes, was that suddenly I didn't have access to those databases, and you sit at your desk realizing that. Sure. If you could go back 10 years, I'd, I'd, I'd literally just bang a few keys and all the information would be there in front of me, um, and that's no longer available. So the, the, there are there are differences, but again, I go back to what I said before, it tends to be more procedural than evidential. The evidence and statements taken and how you deal with your exhibits, all that should be the same. Yeah. Uh, one of the things is, as I was doing some research uh, for, for our conversation is um, I, I'd stumbled across a blog that you'd written just concerning the uh, the Martin Kenny investigations team and kind of developing that well-rounded team, especially nurturing some some up and coming 
you know, anti-fraud professionals you can bring onto the team. And I, I do have a, there's a particular quote that you'd written, if, if, if I could just kind of read it. I thought it really was fantastic. Um, so, so you had said, instead of bemoaning change, those of us long in this profession should make it our goal to impart our experience to those who will surely follow us. Otherwise, we are simply handing the initiative to the crooks and ne'er-do-wells who you can be sure are employing the latest technology has to offer in order to avoid justice. In that article, you went on to discuss Harley Thomas, one of your investigators on the team who had just become a certified fraud examiner, obviously is very early in his career, but well-credentialed, well-read, um, getting started. So as you as you think about building a team, especially bringing on some younger talent, and, and to your point, going back to the beginning of our chat, being able to learn from from, from veterans who have been around a long time, how does how do you see some of those younger folks on your team and people who have a new perspective um, kind of help to develop your team's effectiveness on the cases that you work? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the, of the quotes, I, I think points I was trying to make um, is there's a lot of people out there, perhaps not as old as me, um, but certainly experienced with plenty of years under the belt. Um, in, in private practice, you there's this element of being a little bit wary of the new gun in town on the basis that they might be better than you and that might make you more vulnerable. In the police, it's a totally different thing um, because there is no vulnerability. Um, everybody uh, is up against them. You need to bring these the young, the, the new blood in, in order to make a seamless transition to uh, from the old. Now, the point I was trying to make is in the private sector, and that probably applies to the majority of the people who are listening. We really do need to encourage uh, young young members of the team uh, in the one the likes the likes of Harley, who's a I think he's 25, 26, fully qualified accountant, uh, master's degree in financial investigation. Uh, Sarah Margerson, uh, who's a couple of years older, ex serious fraud office. They've come in and in their own right, they can investigate. My role, as I see it, is to make sure that all the little tricks and uh, tricks that I might be able to uh, impart on them to make their lives easier and to sort of broaden their experience as quickly as possible to make them as functional as we can. If we don't do that, um, you know, we end up in a situation where the wrongdoers, the fraudsters, they'll steal a march on us because with the best one in the world, I can't sit in front of a computer. I'm not computer savvy. I'm 63 years of age. Uh, I can do some very basic IT, but these these kids are brought up with it. They come into the office, they hit the ground running. They're not phased by any sort of software that you ask them to use. Um, that's That's what we need. You know, there's no point being uh, approaching retirement and trying to hide the fact that you're not very good with IT. Just accept you're not good with IT and utilise others who have got the skills uh, to, to sort of fill those holes. It's not that you, you, you're useless because you've got so much knowledge and experience to impart. It's just that you have to accept. It's not, you know, it's it's our generation, well, certainly my generation, is too long in the tooth to start embracing stuff like that. So you need to start filling those gaps with younger talent. 
there's certainly that, that melting pot. I, th- I think that's going to begin to happen. To your point, some of it's learned experience. You know, you can only get by being on the job and going through the processes. Um, but certainly there is, I, I think, a huge benefit to having some of those younger folks. And it certainly seems like your team has started to implement a lot of those technologies and, and understand them, you know, kind of from an earlier level. It's not something that has, to your point, has to necessarily, you have to take time to learn because they're coming up with it. They're understanding these softwares and things. So one, one of my last questions, Tony, is is kind of related to that. What, what kind of new technologies that have kind of aided, you know, either your investigations or um, maybe things that your team has come across that you feel fraud investigators should be implementing or even considering kind of this year and going forward? Yeah, I think it, the, the one of the things I would push strenuously is the the use of uh, I2 or similar software for the charting. It makes life so much easier. People have seen these charts in newspapers. Uh, they may see it on the ICIJ website for uh, you know the, the Pandora Papers or, or something. They're a bit more interactive than the sorts of stuff that I'm on about. But certainly that ability to chart out very complex frauds is invalu- invaluable. And we've we've bought the software through a few licenses and got the staff trained up in it so that we can generate them now. The other thing that we've invested in is a piece of software from that's used by the United Kingdom law enforcement, which we can utilise on interbank uh, discovery IBD from uh, the, the American banks. We can actually ingest all that information into a piece of software that the you know the the other members of the team, the other members of the team are trained in it. They can generate all sorts of really useful uh, reports. It's got artificial intelligence built in. Um, it's stuff like that that. I like reading the reports. I don't really understand the the mechanics of the software. So what I would say to, say to people is, bits of software like that, that's quite basic stuff. Um, I'm sure there's people out there in organisations with far more advanced uh, pieces of software and a lot more re, you know uh, additional resources. But for the small boutique law firm, uh, that's that's really increased our capabilities. Uh, just by buying two pieces of software, and I'm hopeful that at some stage in the future I'll be able to persuade uh, Martin to invest in you know further in the the, the soft, software side of things. Technology, uh, as investigators, we accept, and it doesn't matter whether you're private sector or public. We, we are always one or two steps behind the fraudsters, and our job is to try and hang on to their share tails as best as we can. It's a terrific way to end it there, Tony. I, I really appreciate your time today. Obviously, your perspective, being able to share some things that you're doing with the team. And I think generally just state of you know fraud investigations as a whole and being able to implement new technologies and be able to grow, not just with the team, but with you know a lot of the knowledge and things that are emerging. So I, I do appreciate your time and, and obviously your perspective. And I uh, wish you the best of luck. Thanks. Thanks very much. Bye. All right. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fraud Talk. You can find all episodes of Fraud Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Duffley, signing off.